Welcome to episode 44 of the Westside Barbell Podcast. Today's podcast is a little bit different as we have Coach Josh Bush on the phone with Louis Simmons. Coach Bush is the base lead strength and conditioning coach at Fort Knox for Reef Systems. Coach Bush has known Lou since 2008 and has been visiting Westside ever since. The layout and the purpose of this podcast is a little bit different as it's in a Q&A style format. The reason for this was to educate the coaches at Reef Systems to get them to think outside the box, reach out to others, read more, ask questions, and of course to continue to develop their craft. If you'd like to learn more about Westside Barbell, the Conjugal Method, or if you'd like to get a question into Louie, make sure to go check out our membership site, The Conjugate Club. You can find it at conjugatemethod.com or conjugateclub.com. Hope you enjoy the rest of today's content. Lou, how are you doing today? Doing great. How are you doing, Coach? <clears throat> oh, I'm, I'm doing wonderful. I can't complain. I live in a dream. <laughs> I hey, uh, if you can tell... If you could tell us, uh, you know, a little bit how you got into powerlifting and kind of, you know, how you had a, had a passion for, you know, powerlifting, lifting weights, um, that type of thing. Uh, well, basically, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be strong. So I got my first weight set at 12 years old. I clean jerked 110 at 12 years old. I was uh, actually um, a masonry laborer um, during the school summers and then also after work. At 14, in a contest, they cleaned your um, two, uh, 260 at 140 pounds in a high school meet. But then when I went to my first power meet, I fell in love with powerlifting because the guys are a hell of a lot bigger and stronger. And um, that's how I got into powerlifting. And then uh, later on, after I started you know, getting a few injuries, I knew there must be a better way to train. And in 1980, the very beginning of 1982, I went to the all-Soviet Union methods. And it just changed everything. They're 40 years ahead of everybody else. And um, I knew I lacked something in my training, and that something was applying science. It's a good name to tack on a the degree, but you actually have to do it. And so they actually did it, and I followed suit, and that's how we are here today. I mean, I made the strongest gym in the world. We broke about 140 all-time world records, and I uh, trained two Olympic gold medal sprint champions. I worked with Kevin Rauman, as you'll see, heavyweight champion. So a lot of different people in, in you know different sports. No, that's awesome. <clears throat> I guess as far as, um, so I guess you kind of got into weightlifting first, it sounds like. At yeah. 14. Right. There was no powerlifting when no. I started. <laughs> 1966, uh, there was no weightlifting. I mean, powerlifting. It didn't really get going to about that time. But at that point, I got dr drafted into the Army uh, right out of high school. And so, uh, you know, I started reading a, a magazine over there, Muscle Power Builder. And I had uh, the original Westside Barbell in Culver City had all these power programs. So I started doing it. And I mean, I was sold right off the bat. Box squatting and rack poles and, you know, all the basics. Those are real basics. But, you know, if you don't have a base, you, you can't go anywhere. Pyramid's only as tall as his base. No, absolutely. I agree with you 100%. Luke. Now, see, so you're in the Army. How, how many, how long did you serve in the Army? About two and a half years. But uh, what made you get into kind of coaching and, and kind of the realm of strength and conditioning? Um, I guess as far as all the consultation you've done and 
kind of all the speaking you've done and you know all the just all the educating you've done to all the coaches and you know, all the help in, in our our industry and what kind of led you to that? Well, I mean, I never intended to. I once I started making lots of progress and the people that came to me made progress, then others want to know what we were doing. So you know, they'd ask me to speak here and there and so forth and. Yeah, I, I'm not real big on speaking to crowds, I'll be honest with you. I'd rather be in the gym practicing and working on new experiments. That's all my gym ever was, was a gigantic experiment with top people. You know, if you uh, establish a method to train with world record holders, it probably works. And uh, that's what I had the luxury of doing. I made a lot of world record holders, and um, and we followed suit with doing experiments, and they panned out. I would I would go to at least three meets and take about a year and a half of, and find out the results, and then I would write about what we did. I just didn't write about it right off, and, you know, it wasn't my, it was my, all my programs, but I had top guys doing it, and I learned from them. You need to learn more from your students, and sometimes they do from you. No, that's well said. As far as um, in our profession, you know, I think I know where you stand with this, but, you know, I'm curious to hear, to hear how you word it. I guess, what do you think is a strength conditioning coach? So in our profession, you know, should we train? Should we lead by example? Or, or what's, your, what's your feelings on that? Well, a coach always has to be ahead of the students. And so one thing I don't think coaches do enough of is read. I'm an avid reader. I have, like, literally over 100 books, all on, this, on, on some type of spatial strength or strength endurance or something. And, um, you know, including restoration, but you have to read and then you have to do experiments yourself and find out. But, you know, in this world, physics is, you know, gravity, the speed of gravity is the speed of gravity and mathematics is mathematics. You know, I've figured all this out for years and people just follow what I do uh, They'll be able to make good success. You know, you don't have to figure out what weights to train because I did it, you know, through experiments. Linear, the first thing I learned was, you know, you got to get rid of linear periodization. It's outdated. It's, I did it. I did it from 19, um, you know, actually 70 when I got out of the army. I did an Olympic weightlift too, but I don't even count that. But then from 1970 to the latter part of 1981, I used linear periodization. And unfortunately, sometimes you'd be strong uh, a week or two before me, a week or two after. It was very hard to hit the meat. The problem with it is you get... You know, you got a you got a power phase and a then a um, you know a hyperbathy phase and a strength phase. So close to a contest, when you're handling heavy weights, you dropped all your volume. And if you don't have a base on you, then it's very unpredictable what you lift in the contest. And I mean, but everyone did it. I had no choice. That's what I had to do. And then I started checking out uh, you know the Soviet methods. I immediately went to the three week pendulum wave. Uh, you're, you're, you know, and the books will tell you if you handle weights at 90% above for three weeks in a row, you'll go backwards. So I thought, well, why don't I just switch exercise every week? So we break a, you know, we break a record um, uh, over um, 90, no, no, uh, close to 95% of the time, and we break an all-time record on, um, you know, our two max every days doing spatial exercises. But we, each week we switch. That way we never get into the law of accommodation. Once you get there, you're going to go backwards. You know, once you, uh, there's just no way you'll make progress. So that's one of the major things I did. Actually, I was doing it long before I read about the Soviets. And, you know, conjugate systems in all ball sports, 
You don't throw the same pitch every time. You don't run the same plan football. It's all connected. You know, you got, I mean, conjugate means basically connected and uh, or coupled. So you want to just couple your workouts together. If you break that chain, that's when you have trouble. But, you know, after a while, you learn never to break that chain. It just all fits in a purpose. And then discover someone's weaknesses or your own. And that's what you train. You bring up the weaknesses. If you don't, you'll never bring up your strengths. That's what I, you know, ba- you know the basis of it. Well, yeah, I've, <clears throat> even before meeting you, you know, I was very skeptical of linear periodization person myself. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's, you know, kind of what you said along the lines of, you know, I, I just never understood why you'd want to go through and continually get further and further away from different phases. You know, you're losing those attributes the longer right. you get away from them. So yeah. trying to find a way to, to be able to kind of train everything in a one week, one month, mm-hmm. you know, way is, is kind of what I always thought would envision as possible, you know, and then when I stumbled across a lot of your readings and when I got, you know, fortunate enough to meet you, you know, I, it all kind of started making a lot more sense to me in a way. I mean, obviously, I'm sure there's plenty of people on the call that have different thoughts and ideas um, for that. But it, it, as far as with, with your gym and just your, your mindset, you know, over the years, what, what do you think is the most important thing as far as developing that, that hyper-competitiveness? I think, first and foremost, you had to be born with that competitive spirit, a real one, not a, not a fake one. And you have to have good GPP so you can handle the work and just, you know, realize it's for a long haul. It's going to be tough. But, you know, that's what makes it fun. I always, I love to train. Too many people like to go to contests and not train. And I, I love to train almost more to go into contests for a long time. Then I started to enjoy the contests when I switched over to this method. But uh, uh, training partners, that's the key. I never had one. Actually, 1973, I had the highest total in the world, 19, in uh, 181s. And um, I had the highest total in the world, February of 1973. But then I broke my back. I didn't get any, you know, it took a long time to recover. That's how I came up with the reverse hyper. Since sometime about the middle of 1974. But... When I started getting training partners, it made a big difference. I used to watch Larry Pacifico just 70 miles away from here, and Glass Toledo and all these other places, Cincinnati uh, Weightlifting Club, and they all had a lot of guys. And I thought, well, hell, man, you know, they got, they got five or six minds got to be better than one. And so when I started getting training partners, then I, I started uh, learning, you know, watching them, and we did experiments, and I found out the truth about training. You know, some things don't work. A guy came one time, and they did a they, they wanted to talk to me from the university, and I told them, and then the girl asked a friend of mine who actually was a professor in Ohio State, says, is he really doing that? He says, you ought to see the things that don't work, and that was the truth. A lot of people are afraid to fail, and I was not, I've never been afraid to fail. I'll try something don't work. I don't do it, and then, uh, but you know, you stumble on the things, or, and you correct things, and next thing you know, you're making some phenomenal progress. I, I started 14-year-olds out, and at 20, we're open world champions. So, you know, it pretty much says it all. I mean, their background was playing, you know, football in high school and stuff like that. So. Oh, absolutely. I guess with, with our population that we primarily work with as far as soldiers, I mean, most of the, most of the coaches on the call work on the Army side. I'm sure we have a few coaches that work on the other side with the Air Force. But we see a lot of aerobic conditioning, um, a lot of rough marching, a lot of wear and tear, just a lot of excessive running. Um, do you have any recommendations for, you know, anaerobic conditioning? I know we, we try to do it with our battalion, at least two or three days a week. Um, but 
do you have any recommendations kind of how to how to continue to fight that fight you know combat um, kind of what the army's been doing for so many years with so much so much mileage put on the body and so much yeah i i can say one thing coach um you know if you watch a marathon even the top ones the ones across the line uh, they're never out of air. They're never out of oxygen. They're, their legs are tired. And so forth. And two of the things that I think, if I had two things to train with, and only two, it would be a wheelbarrow and a weight sled. I'd pull a weight sled and I would push a wheelbarrow. And, uh, I mean, I've had tremendous uh, success with track people. Of course, track people always pull sleds. And, uh, but actually for long distance, 800 meters and uh, marathoners and everything else. You just do it in intervals. I... I have a book on running. It talks about leaving a marathon. I could do interval training, maybe pull a sled for a half hour, let the heart rate come back, and a half hour, let the heart rate come back. But that is a lot less wear and tear than running. Especially a lot of people don't know how to run. Yeah, yeah. You know, but if you go back, Josh, like I said, I was very strong as a young child. And I it all came from me being a block tender, uh, mixing mortar, pushing wheelbarrows, carrying blocks, building scaffolds, you know, unloading roofing material. It's just, it's just pure GPP, undirected training, but I applied that muscular strength I'd gained into, um, you know, a sport of weightlifting at the time. And it, and it worked, <laughs> you know. I was just naturally stronger than any other person. If you take a guy that walks, that works in an office versus a guy that does manual labor, the guy that works in the office would have to do more small workouts during the week for GPP. I guess. You know, it's been a long time coming, you know, but it looks like we're finally making headway, at least as far as the Army, as far as strength conditioning and PT is concerned. Um, do you have any recommendations for the coaches or myself that's on the call for, you know, kind of moving forward with, with stuff, with expanding? Um, any recommendations for training or, or leadership or do's or don'ts, you know, as far as moving forward? the way things are going with the tactical setting. Mm -hmm. I think I would, I, I think you're already doing it. I mean, you know, I'm not a great kettlebell guy, but I'd add kettlebells. I think they're very safe and, and good on the joints. And I would add some jumping in there. So, you know, that's a couple of things. And, you know, probably, I, don't, I suppose you already do it, just some basic grappling. You know, sports like that where you have contact because, you know, if you guys are going to war, you're, you may run in and have a contact with someone. So just basic things that makes it fun. I've had a rugby team do this, and uh, he brought in wrestlers during the offseason, said he had a couple of injuries, but it eliminated lots of injuries during the, tr the tr uh, actually uh, competing season. And it's fun, you know. To keep the competitiveness up. You know, you make games. You know, make games out of this stuff. Don't make uh, it out of work. You know, a workout is just a workout. It can be very, very boring. Uh, my gym, you know, not that it mattered, but years ago when the gym was much, was the strongest, we had was constantly betting money, you know, on, box, on squatting and deadlifting and you name it. I mean, everything you did, it, there was money involved. And we did a lot with teams. We broke up the gym into two or three-man teams, added up the total amount of weight lifted, and that made us very, very competitive. Uh, you'd be surprised, like, if you and I were on a team, and we were 20 pounds behind in a rack pole, you'd be amazed how you would pull a 25-pound PR to win that contest, you know, just because it was a team element. And you got, uh, let's face it, the military is a team. It starts at the top of the president, goes right down to the, you know, the buck private. 
So it's always going to be a chain of command, and you want to work as a team. I don't, I don't have to tell you guys that you're you're in it. No, definitely. No, I, I appreciate that. <laughs> I've asked you quite a few questions here. I got some more, but you know, I want to open it up for some callers to have some interaction with you in case they might have some questions. Sure. Of some stuff that we've already topped, you know, covered, or, or maybe some other things that they'd like to ask you. Mm-hmm. Okay. Coach Louie, this is Coach Bilski down at Fort Polk, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. I just want to ask you something about your programming, dealing with dynamic days. Um, my question is, how do you track volume with high variation on the dynamic days, and how would you implement it into a tactical setting? Well, I mean, for us, you want to talk about um, controlling volume. Uh, on our speed day, on, on dynamic day, on Friday, we do 25 squats and we do 25 deadlifts. And we do them at 80, 85, and 90%. So basically, on the mean day, the 85%, you could say, you just take, uh, uh, you know, if it's uh, if you're training with 600 pounds, you multiply it by 25. That's your volume. And what you want to do, the strongest people have the most volume. Because, you know, if you, a guy that uh, squats 400, 80%, it's 320, but a you know a guy that squats um, you know uh, you know 600 would be uh, 480. So see, as your strength goes up, your volume has to go up, and the key is the bar velocity has to basically maintain real close to the same, about uh, somewhere roughly around 0.8 meters per second. We used to do, as you probably know, we used to do uh, 12 doubles in a squat. Well, now we took it to five sets of five. And people's asking me why. My gym would got lazy. and Too many guys to get in a group. So I made them do five sets of five, uh, you know, instead of taking six-minute rest because they need to take about a minute and a half rest, which would be real important for you guys. But, but to that point, you, uh, as long as you can do the fifth rep as fast as the second rep, you might as well do five reps. And that's why we did it that way. And it's paid off. I mean, just since last November, we broke four all-time world records. At a female squad, 617 at 132. And my 123 made 650, 6, 655, and 670 all-time world records. And it's all done at all in all three lifts. And like the squat, it will run away for three weeks. Remember, after th- the body runs bio- bi- uh, biologically in three-week waves. So we go up for three weeks. On the fourth week, we'll drop back down. We, you know, we'll go 80, 85, 90. On the fourth week, this now is very important because they use uh, one group I have used 250 pound of band tension. All right, they, you know, the biggest squad, there's 700 squatters. And, uh, you know, the girls squat 730 and the kids squat seven. So, what on the fourth week, we drop back down to the 80% bar weight, but I reduce the band tension down to 140. So, I take 110 pound of band tension off. That way, see, it's built in restoration on that week. Second week, we're right back up to the blue band, you know, the 250 pound of band, and the third. And then after, you know, after another three-week wave, we, brought, we drop back down and reduce a lot of the band tension. The band tension is very important because when you use bands of weights, it causes the overspeed eccentrics, which is good. It makes you very strong, makes you uh, uh, good for a muscle reversal strength. But eccentrics is how you get sore. And, uh, you know, so, and we, we do fast ascent. We don't lower the bar slow. Uh, I've seen study after study doing eccentric work slowly, you know, handling a, 25% of their max or 50, but it never panned out. So I go, well, why in the hell would I do something that's never been proven? But overspeed eccentrics work. And anyone that doesn't believe this, merely take a basketball and drop a basketball. See how, fly, how high it bounces. Now throw that same basketball down. 
it bounces over your head. That's that that elasticity strength in that ball is the same as how your body responds to that. All right. That's why that's why people do uh, you know, death jumps and so forth. So that answers your question pretty much, or you got more? Yes, sir. See, it's all in the bench, the yes, same sir. thing. Thank you so much. Yeah, just follow that, add it up, and mean you know, if you're an eight hundred pound squatter, uh, you know, the first week, eight eights is sixty four at the at the with the weight and the band to be six hundred and forty pounds times twenty five. Then you go to your deadlifts and then do the same thing. And uh, one other note for deadlifting, like if you deadlift 700, but if you pull 600 off a box, you got to take 80% of that 600. All right, don't take it off 700. You know, whatever you're pulling off of, take that percentage. Like if you are stronger sumo than you are conventional, you know, you, you regulate your, uh, you know, the weights, of, the weights will be different, but the percents never, ever change. All right. And why is it, why is it important that I use three weights? People ask me that all the time. You know, every when all you guys leave and you jump out there in your Jeeps or whatever the hell you're driving, watch the tachometer. The tach will go to a certain amount of RPMs and it shifts. Uh, why? Because that optimal makes optimal horsepower in your motor. The same thing with these lifts. If you lift too fast, you you won't force goes down. Force, uh, you know, its force is inverted. Uh, objects of fast velocity with small resistance causes small force. All right. Like you can, uh, uh, the slower you move, I mean, you're moving as fast as possible, but the slower that velocity is with massive loads, the stronger you become. And this is easy to prove because isometrically, you produce 15% more than you do uh, dynamically. So, you know, that's, they test your strength isometrically, not like how much you bend, squat, dead, clean, jerk, or snatch. Coach Simmons, this is Coach Lopez with uh, Fort, down here in Fort Bliss. Uh, okay, pleasure to be speaking sure. with you. Just a quick question. I know you're a well-read man, and I was just wondering, what is some more of the, I guess, more recent literature that you think that we should kind of be diving into versus that old uh, Russian literature, which I'm sure most of us have already, you know, delved into. So what are some more recent things that uh, you've been reading that you would suggest? Well, like I said, gravity never changes. You know, the rate of gravity never changes. Mathematics never change. These guys had this figured out in the 70s. Uh, but what I suggest you do uh, like you buy a book called The Practice of Science of Strength Training or maybe even Super Training or The Science of Sports Training. Because like in, um, when I got my first copy, I'd done this in 1982, and I believe, I thought it was early, but it was 1995, the first copy of The Practice of Science of Strength Training came out. So, I, of course, I bought it. I didn't know, but it proved to me that everything I was doing, I was on the right track. It talks about, uh, you know, law of accommodation, uh, circumax. It talks about, um, you know, everything, delayed transformation, all these things you need to know. And it, but it talks about the relationship between many things, force and velocity, force and posture. And uh, so you need to know these things, okay? And uh, so really, that's the book I would buy. It just, you know, it, it confirms your knowledge and you know what you're doing. Have you ever read any of the, um, the old weightlifting books, uh, the, uh, the weightlifting yearbooks? They got enormous amount of information in there. Those guys, I mean, there's, there's no one out here right now stronger than they were. So, you know, there's a lot of good information. Dr. Verfrashansky had many, many books on uh, depth jumps and so forth, too. Those are very good books to, to pick up. But, I mean, I think super training, practice science training, practice of science and strength, those are two way, you know, those would be good. And uh, practice of science and strength training, it's fairly easy to read. I, I know he said himself that he was criticized by coaches 
that the book was too easy, but he was criticized by coaches. I'm sorry, by uh, scientists. The scientists said it was too easy, but the coaches said it was too hard. So, you know, it's right in the middle. Just take your time. Uh, when I used to get puzzled when I started this back in 82, I would merely set myself back into the gym, and then I realized, then it all solved all my problems. Hey, this is Coach Beckman down at uh, Fort Polk. Mm-hmm. Hi, I just wanted to know, how did you come up with the idea for the land shark or the belt slot machine? Well, the, <laughs> the land shark is like a minnow compared to our belt squat machine, okay? <laughs> but uh, it's nothing but fish bait, as far as I'm concerned. But I come up with our ATP or our belt squat because um, we're all box squatters. We're breaking, you know, all-time world records box squatting. But it's it, you build enormous hip strength, but a little bit of your leg strength, you go away, especially in the quadriceps. So I thought I have to supplement it. How can I do it? Leg press didn't do anything for me. And so I started belt squatting. And then I, you know, because uh, that way there's no bar in your back. And no matter, you know, you know, if you're, it doesn't matter if your back's tired or not, you can still belt squat. And back then I started out with, the, with just chain the weights around my waist where they would hang in front and be unstable. And I'd stand on two benches. And, uh, and right away I started building our legs up. And, you know, where we were starting to stall, right off the bat, we we're making progress again. And right now my ATP, it has rails on it. And uh, I can get, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you two examples. The one was a one, a 242. His deadlift was stuck at 840 for a year. I put him on our belt squad with a few other things, a lot, a lot of rack pull or box pulls. But he would deadlift while the bait belt was around his waist as well. All right. At 14 weeks, he pulled 890 and 242s in a mean. I've got a guy, 6'7", 300 pounds, same thing. Trained over at Larry Pacificos for a year. Came in here. Put him, put him in the ATP where he could deadlift heavy weights while he was belt squatting. And it, again, it, it's, it's strange, but in 14 weeks, he goes to meet and pulls 900. And uh, you got to realize your legs and your back extension have two different acceleration rates. Right? I mean, you, are, can you tell me positively without hooking up electrodes yourself, what picks up the weight, your legs or your back? It's very hard to tell. But when you, but when you put resistance on both of them, you know, um, separately through a belt and in your hands, then it, it really makes a big difference in your, uh, uh, you know, strength, your, you know, combined strength. Or the, the, the kinematic chain is working a lot better together. That's how I come up with it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we just got more modern over the years. You know, we had, then I built platforms, then I built machines. And you, you see it works because if not, there wouldn't be freaking 40 people copying me over the years. Well, I just going to mention it's also an excellent uh, device for traction for, on the spine. There's, a, there's chiropractors here in Columbus that they call it the spinal liner, and they use it for tractioning out the spinal cord. That, that's it. How do they go about How do you recommend that? I just like you hook that belt up and you stand there, you march in place, and what it will do, it will correct pelvic tilt because that cable hangs straight down. And when you're walking, it's going to pull, you know, left, right, front, or back and correct pelvic tilt. Many of us have pelvic tilt. And uh, too many of us have tight psoas. You know, you go to a chiropractor and he works on you. I've never had, ever had a chiropractor mention the word psoas. If you don't stretch out that psoas, you're going to com- go right back and get the same back issues that you got. The psoas is in the front of the you know, body and the stomach, and there's no opposing muscle. 
So when it tightens up, it pulls you. You see a lot of old people walking bent over. Nine times out of ten, it's the psoas. Not, you know, it's not their back. <clears throat> but it can cause back, back ailment. Also, one thing a person could do with a bad back is get some ankle weights, five or ten pound ankle weights, and wear them during the day. You have instant traction. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, like I said, you get the pelvic tilt and one, you know, chiropractor measures your legs, it's a half inch longer, you know, three quarter inch longer. Well, those ankle weights around the ankles during the day will, will help fix all that or bring it back. And plus, when you take a step, uh, you're building up your stomach as, as well. So I really like wearing ankle weights for people who's got bad backs. You, if you wore them in a bench pro workout even, you don't even know you're doing anything, you know, and you don't even know they're on there after two minutes. But then when you're done, you know, while you bench, you also help traction out your spine. Hey, Coach Simmons. This is Mike Falzone here from Northern Virginia. How you doing? Good, Coach. How are you? Good. I'm doing great. Uh, I just had a question for you. I finished up my master's a few months back, and uh, my research was focused mainly on accentuated eccentric loading uh, with weight releasers uh, and the back squat exercise. Uh, and, you know, in a perfect world, we would have gotten access to uh, some elite athletes and uh, been able to kind of track their adaptations over an extended period of time. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case. So my question for you, I was just kind of wondering, in your experience with uh, accentuated eccentrics, what have you kind of, what have been your key findings with your athletes? And, uh, you know, how does that kind of affect their recovery and overall training program? Well, I, I was one of the first ones in America to use weight releasers. You know, overseas, they were called uh, strippers because two lifters would take the weight off in the bottom. But, you know, uh, they came up with weight releases. I use them. I have a heavy-duty set. We put 400 pounds on, uh, and we did overspeed eccentrics. I'm not into slow eccentrics. It's never panned out. Not once. I've never seen one program that made you stronger. The only, only group of people that recommended doing some eccentric training is Olympic weightlifters from overseas because they basically, you know, they just fall down in a squat. But um, I don't know what you did or how you did it, but the Soviets did lots of experiments, and they would load the bar uh, with 20% on the weight releaser and 60 on the barbell. So they would lower itself with 80 and come up with 60. They did it to build explosive power. Now, me, uh, you know, I'm not worried about explosive power. I've got guys that jump on 60 boxes in their sleep. So I used, uh, if you look at my book, uh, Fundam, uh, see, it's um, Space with String Tape. You'll watch a guy on here called Joe Bayless, who's very powerful as it is. But if you watch him, now he box squats. We load the bar. I don't recall how much, but we load up the bar and we put weight releases on and we use chains so they deload more proportions than, than weights. You know, they deload very uh, proportionally to the eccentric phase. And as we added more and more weight to the, to the eccentric on the weight releases, his concentric speed increased. And I don't know if anyone has ever done that ex except myself. And I, I, I could tell you something else. I tested 20 guys at the time could squat at least 850. Uh, this, this is like 20 years ago. And also three world record holders in the bench. And I used two Tendo units. I, you know, I hooked one at the top and then I had one in the bottom hooked on the bar. So I measured the eccentric concentric speeds. And um, the, we did speed strength and we did uh, circumax weights. I was involved in that. And I was the slowest, and Dave Tate was the fastest. Uh, but then uh, on speed strength, uh, we, uh, we had several guys. I mean, these are a couple of those guys are world record horses in the squat. But it was determined at the end that your eccentric, concentric speed, theirs was within one meter uh, per second of each other. 
So what does that say? Faster down, faster up. And it proved it within a shadow of a doubt. You know, bodybuilders lower weight slow. That's how you build, you know, muscular hyperpathy. And, uh, but also, see, lowering weights uh, is where the soreness comes from. And uh, I think weight release is a good thing or just a pain in the butt. See, for us, we just use bands, a lot of strong tension on the bands. You know, the deformation, uh, you know, and uh, exertion has to do with how much those bands are stretched. So whenever you put bands on a barbell, make sure you've got lots of tension in the bottom. You know, there cannot be any slack. It will not work. But that way, that bar, that bands will help pull you down faster, causing greater reversal strength. It's not plyometric for sure. It's not under two tenths, but it's more like power metrics. And uh, I, I'd rather use bands because I don't have to put them on, take them off the bar every time. You know, if you want to change bar velocities, the best way to do it is by adding bands and not weight. If you start adding, like, you know, if you start adding too much weight to the bar, you can't get out of the bottom. And if you just use bands, the weights would, would do somewhat shrinking in the bottom. So it would be too light in the bottom with bands, and it would be too heavy in the bottom with weights. So there, how do you get a perfect world? Bands and weights. And that's how you do it. And, uh, you know, I, I've done all these experiments, and I know exactly how much band tension. You know, for speed strength, it's around 33%. We used to use 25, but we took it up to a minimum of 33. And, I mean, with just ungodly results. And, um, you know, the circumax is about, uh, goes out to 44. We actually raised that to uh, 50%. Like I just had a kid use 500-pound of band, 123, and he squatted 500 pounds. So he got it basically combined at the top of 1,000 pounds. I had a girl do the same thing with 500-pound of band tension, and she's at 198, and she squatted. She's already made a 730 squat pretty easy to me. Uh, but she made four, 445 and 500-pound of band tension. All right. So now next thing we're going to do, we'll experiment and see what our squat is. Uh, I can and in reverse because we 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 find out if you jump 30 pounds on, on this circumax, you should squat 30. But I had a guy in the gym. He went to a meet uh, by 165, went up to 181 and squatted 955. It's a 55 pound record off his best squat. All right. So but then we took a circumax phase and he broke it by 55 pounds. It worked in re it just in reverse. It proved, you know, it's, it's a double double fold way to prove what we do. Hey, I, I really appreciate you being on the, on the call today. Um, do you have any any uh, I guess any words of wisdom for us moving forward with with what we're doing or you know being a strength conditioning coach? Um, well, you've got a lot of people at you know, at your, you know in front of you. I would do experiments. You know, you know, it's basically for building spatial strengths, all different types of spatial strengths. That's all I did. I experimented. My guys had no trouble jumping in, uh, you know, doing it with bands, chains, whatever, shorter rest periods, longer rest periods, uh, you name it. So I would try to get a group of guys and run some experiments with your people. You know, it's basically, I mean, then you could test it maybe in a mile run or, or some of the other stuff that you do. And uh, that that's pretty much what I would do. I would experiment. That way you're learning on your own. I mean, you might, you know, that's how I change things. I had a coach that uh, told me to get jump stretch bands. It's from Liberty University, Dave Williams. And uh, he told me he'd pay me. I said, well, you ain't got to pay me. I mean, you know, he came here all the time. He's a good friend of mine. And he told me that he was afraid to, to do things because he didn't want to look stupid. And I go, well, I'd never mind looking stupid. You know, I, I did a million different things that didn't work. But in the end, I got 12 United States patents. 
That's how you learn. You know, if things don't work. You you re, you just modify it. So I would I would try to get some groups of guys. You know, to make it safe, but do some experiments on your own. Different interval training, different amount of resistance. You know, just rem, just remember everyone on this call. Uh, what really turned me around to strength training was I, when I realized that strength is measured in velocities. It's not measured in weights. It's measured in how fast you move a barbell. You know, explosive strength, fast, flossy, speed, strength, intermediate, strength, speed, and slow. And when I, when I got that in my head, it really changed. Because if a guy's trying to build explosive strength and he's not moving the bar that fast, he's not going to build explosive strength. If you're trying to get super strong and you're doing 10 reps, you know, because you've only got 50% of weight on the bar, you're not going to get strong either. So you need to know these things. You need to break them up. That's why I suggested super training and a few books that they would buy because those are classroom books. Matter of fact, uh, uh, the one gentleman wanted to know if there's anything new. But I remember when I got the books from, from Bud years ago, I remember what he told me. He said, you know, Louie, says these are classroom books. And I said, it's exactly what I want. Because I was stuck. I didn't know my own sport. You know, there's so much to strength that's not funny. And I think that's why people overlook uh, the essential um, you know, value of strength training. Because they think it's, anybody can pick up some barbells. That's all there is to it. There's a whole lot to it. You know, especially the periodization. I'm writing a book right now, uh, Organization and Periodization. So, you know, on the day of the contest or the day of the fight or the day of the track meet, that's when you're at your best. You know, not, don't miss it by 10 days. Don't do any good. Uh, you know, a lot of people like they prepare for sports or you prepare for your contests in the army or any uh, you know military establishment. And the first thing you got to do, you have to be in shape. If not, you can't use technique. And if you don't have proper technique, you can't use strategy. So those things fall together. I'm a huge MMA fight fan, and I see a lot of guys with a lot of talent, but you can tell by watching the fight that they had no strategy. As nine times out of ten, they'll lose, and you're thinking, there's no way this guy should lose. But he did not have a strategy uh, for the fight. So that's how it basically goes. And, uh, you know, prepare yourself for an event. And, you know, if you prepare yourself correctly, you'll prepare yourself to win. And uh, I'm closing off with that. 